Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at a few verses here, verses 3 through 7. We're going to focus our attention primarily on verse 3. I think we looked at this about 10 years ago, and I want to come back to it this morning. And as always, I want to uh, start by explaining a little bit about the context of this passage. So we actually have to go back a few verses into chapter 4. So if you're already in Ephesians 5, just look with me at the very beginning of the chapter. This is one of those places in Scripture where the chapter division is a little bit inconvenient. If you try to get the flow of Paul's thought here, you'll see that the end of chapter 4 isn't really a good stopping point. Whoever made the chapter and verse divisions put a chapter break right between an argument and its conclusion. Notice that chapter 5 begins with the word, therefore. That's an adverb that links a truth to its consequences. And in this case, it ties a simple principle about forgiveness to an even bigger principle about love. It links the complex argument of Ephesians 4 verses 22 through 32. That's like a, an 11-verse argument, and it's linked to a very simple and powerful conclusion that is stated in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. So let's see what this therefore is there for. And back up just a few verses into chapter 4. We'll pick up Paul's line of argument in verse 22. He's giving the Ephesians a series of practical admonitions, put off the old man and put on the new, verses 22 through 24. And then verse 25, put away lying, speak the truth. Verse 26, control your anger. Verse 27, resist the devil. Verse 28, don't steal, but instead earn a living with the work of your own hands. And verse 29 then, use your mouth to edify rather than to corrupt. Hang on to that thought because he's going to come back to it. And then to sum up verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So that all goes together. And then starting in verse 31, he seems to address something that was a particular problem in the Ephesian assembly. Some kind of squabbling or personal strife was ruining their fellowship. And so he urges them to set aside whatever petty personal differences they might have had with one another and treat each other with the same kind of love Christ shows for us. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's like he's talking to the, the Christian community on Twitter there. But notice carefully what he's saying. God's forgiveness purchased by Christ and applied to us by the Holy Spirit that is the prototype for tender-hearted love, God's forgiveness for those who believe. And that's what Paul longs to see in the Ephesians, this expression of God's tender-hearted love flowing through them to one another. And, and uh, he's saying to them, surely if, if God forgave you the eternal debt of your sin, you can learn to forgive one another for any and every kind of earthly personal offense relatively petty things compared to what God has forgiven us. And so he says, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with every form of malice. 
Just put it aside and be kind and compassionate to one another. He tells them, forgive one another freely and lavishly and completely, even if that means you have to bear a wrong that was committed against you because that's what Jesus did. There's no reason two Christians ought to be set against one another over personal offenses because since, since we know what it is like to be desperately in need of God's forgiveness, we should never withhold that forgiveness from one another. And, and this is where chapter 5 begins, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In, in other words, imitate God and specifically imitate His love, His loving kindness. God's love is a love that gives and forgives. It's a self-sacrificial love, just the way Christ loved us and gave Himself to save His people from their sins. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than, than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And 1 John 4, 11 says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And the point is that genuine godly love is always sacrificial and self-giving, merciful, compassionate, sympathetic, kind, generous, patient, and, and above all, full of forgiveness. Those are all the very same characteristics Paul was speaking of near the end of chapter 4. And so when he says in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, be imitators of God and walk in love, he's simply summarizing the whole point he's been making. He, he's stating the conclusion to his argument. And by the way, this Simple command in verse 2 is a perfect summary of the entire duty of the whole Christian life. Walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. If you've ever studied the Ten Commandments, and we did that together a few years ago, or, or even the first and second great commandments, then you know that love sums up the whole moral obligation of God's law. And in fact, Scripture makes that point over and over again, Romans 13, verses 8 through 10 says, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And Jesus Likewise taught that all the law and the prophets hang on two simple commandments, two simple principles about love, the first and second great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. It's all about love. And in the words of Colossians 3.14, love is the bond of perfection. Or as the ESV translation has, has it, love binds all the other virtues together in perfect unity. So here is a summary, a summary of our entire duty as Christians. Imitate God by displaying His love, and we do this by reflecting His kindness, practicing forgiveness, and being tenderhearted to one another. That's how to be an Im imitator of God. That's how to model Christ's love. That's how to keep from grieving the Holy Spirit, whose role is to shed God's love apart, uh, abroad in our hearts. Romans 5.5, 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Now, meanwhile, the world thinks of love and practices love in a completely different way. We as Christians are supposed to imitate God's love by reproducing His love toward others in the form of kindness and patience and holy behavior. The world takes the concept of love, and though verbally they may exalt it in all of that, the world merely perverts love. And although there is plenty of talk about love in secular society, the world's love is always a kind of counterfeit love, a corruption of love, a, a perverted notion of what love is. And that kind of love is not to be mimicked by true believers. That's the point Paul's turning to in the passage we're going to look at this morning. He exposes some counterfeit varieties of love, and he says we should have nothing whatsoever to do with these things, not in our behavior, not in our speech, and not even in our thoughts. And so I'm going to read this passage starting in verse 3, which is the verse we're going to focus on. I'll start there. Verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partners with them." Now, observe verse 3, the verse we're going to focus on. He forbids three things, immorality, all impurity, and covetousness. In the King James Version, it's fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness. Those are three perverted imitations of love, three varieties of worldly love, immorality, uncleanness, and covetousness. Immorality is the, it's obvious, this is the brand of counterfeit love that our generation has embraced above all others. And in fact, popular culture today has deliberately corrupted the meaning of the word love by equating it with this sort of illicit lust that is labeled love and, and includes all kinds of things like fornication and homosexuality and who knows what other varieties of perversion and idolatry. And of course, the greatest love of all is easy to achieve because learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. I learned that from Whitney Houston. But these these are immoral corruptions of love, and they are reflected everywhere in our popular music and our entertainment and the way people today live their lives, so that when the world exalts love in their songs and their poems and their stories, and that may all sound very, you know, high moral kind of thinking, but it isn't. It's usually a reference to some kind of immorality or uncleanness or evil desire which are the very things verse 3 forbids. And the Greek word that's translated fornication or sexual immorality in verse 3 is porneia, which includes every kind of sexual sin and immoral passion. The world refers to those things as love, but fornication in all of its forms is a complete perversion of the whole idea of love. Porneia, fornication, seeks 
self-gratification rather than the good of others. It's the opposite of love. There's nothing truly sacrificial about fornication. It's as far from the Spirit of Christ as you can possibly go. And every worldly corruption of love is like that. It's selfish, self-seeking, destructive to others rather than edifying to them. And so it's really ironic that the world labels sexual immorality love. It's practically the polar opposite of love. Impurity is the second worldly substitute for love. And here, Paul uses a a more general term that refers to every kind of filth and pollution, uncleanness. And he's talking about real spiritual uncleanness here. This is not about ceremonial defilement. This is about moral filth. He gives some specific examples of what he has in mind in verse 5, or verse 4, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jesting. Those, notice, are all references to language, the words people use, the things they talk about, the spirit of their conversation. Now, you might ask, well, how is that a perversion of love? How, how does that have anything to do with love? Remember, Paul is dealing here with counterfeit varieties of love perversions of love. So you might ask, well, how do smutty words and base conversations and vulgar jokes, how does that fit into anybody's category of love? But think about it. Those are the peculiar characteristics of worldly companionship, filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting. Those are the main emblems of membership in any kind of carnal brotherhood. You look at any of Satan's strongholds, any place where wickedness operates unrestrained, wherever you find a band of thieves or a federation of scoundrels, from the juvenile gangs that roam our streets to the old men's club that hangs out at the neighborhood bar, filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking are invariably their main stock in trade. That is what will consume whatever leisure time they spend together because those are the main badges of fleshly fellowship. That is the glue that substitutes for authentic love in virtually every worldly fraternity. That's the glue that holds worldly fellowship together. And that's exactly what Paul is describing here. And he says, don't let things like that characterize your fellowship with one another. And incidentally, to obey the the principle Paul sets forth here nowadays, you're going to have to be intentionally countercultural because the culture we live in today values evil companionship much more than wholesome love. I don't know if you've ever considered the degree to which this is true, but filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting actually may be the dominant trademarks of the culture you and I live in. In fact, be forewarned, as we dig into this passage, you might chafe a little bit at what Paul is saying here. Because the commandments he gives us in, in these verses that I just read, these are not easy for people in our culture to receive. But this is vitally important. Vile language, crude subject matter, silly talk, sheer folly, these are the main currency of the contemporary entertainment industry, right? You, you can't even turn on the TV today without being assaulted with either vile words or vile subject matter. The the corrupt notion of brotherhood that Paul is attacking here is exactly what most of our culture 
has substituted in place of real love. That's why movies today are filled with dirty words and smutty themes. You, you can hardly watch a movie nowadays without some kind of dirty words or smutty themes. That's why, and even the kids' movies, it's true. I've thought about this now that I've got grandchildren. My, my daughters-in-law are very sensitive about what they expose their kids to, and I'm thankful for that. But I've learned you can't just look at something and say, well, that's a kids' movie, that'll, that'll be okay. It isn't okay today because so much of it is filled with either vile subject matter or, or bad language or just silly, coarse jesting, the very thing Paul is talking about here. And contemporary comedy, so dependent on vile language and filthy subject matter to get a laugh that you can hardly listen to today's comedians. You, you certainly can't do it in most cases and retain your sanctification. You know, situation comedies on television, they used to be, uh, they used to feature families and plot lines, and now they are shows about nothing, dealing mainly with relationships between friends who are unmarried and unattached and lacking any kind of discernible direction in their lives. Filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking describes about 99% of the content of programs like that. And our culture insists that those things are perfectly benign, but Paul says they are not. And, and notice this, he categorizes spicy talk about frivolous subject matter right along with some of the most serious of all sins, fornication. And he says, don't get addicted to this brand of humor, you know, foolish talk and just, of course, jesting. Don't get addicted to that, and especially do not allow that kind of companionship to characterize your life. Carnal camaraderie has nothing to do with genuine godly love or Christian fellowship. Verse 4 says such things are out of place for Christians. They have no place in the Christian's walk. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Such things are not evidence of genuine love, even if the world calls it love. It's just the opposite. So keep those things out of your life. But more than that, he says even, keep references to stuff like that out of your conversation. It's a shame even to speak of those things, he says. Now, covetousness, that's the third thing that he names here in verse 3. What is covetousness? It's simply another selfish perversion of love. It's a love for things rather than a love for people. It's a materialistic kind of love. That's what he's talking about, covetousness. So these are the worldly imitations of love, counterfeit love. And again, these are also some of the most prominent characteristics of this selfish, narcissistic age in which we live. All of these things are what the world would label as love, or they're, they're part and parcel of that. But they aren't love. They have nothing to do with love, just the opposite. These are self-gratifying, carnal substitutes for love. And Paul says sins like those must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, verse 3. He sounds legalistic here, doesn't he? I mean, to those of us who hear that every call to obedience or holiness is legalistic, but he's not being legalistic. This is the very essence of genuine love, and Christians should have an utter and absolute abhorrence of these kinds of sins. These are things, Paul says, that should be unknown and unheard of in the church. And in verse 7, he says, if people are given over to these kinds of sins, 
Don't become partners with them. Don't fraternize with people who are addicted to these perverted brands of love. Don't associate with them except for the purpose of evangelism. Don't make them your companions or your spiritual partners. Don't be unequally yoked with them. Don't tolerate them in your circles of Christian fellowship, but distance yourself from them, he's saying. Be different. Order your life in accord with what is proper for saints and purge these corrupt ideas about love from your behavior, your speech, and your thinking. And so this morning, I want to look more carefully at these three worldly substitutes for love, and and let's examine each one of them a little bit more closely. Let's see why these things are not suitable for saints. And we'll let verse 3 be our outline. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you. Three things, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And we'll look at those three perversions of love one at a time. For the sake of our outline, we'll, we'll just lift those words straight from the text and use them as a three-point outline. And, and let's try to see as clearly as possible what Paul is talking about here. Now, keep in mind that Paul's whole point is that these three vices are actually corruptions of love. They're, they're corrupt ideas that are often related to love or called love, but they're not love, and they are therefore serious sins because if, think about it, if love is what fulfills the law, any corruption of love is a direct attack on the whole purpose of the law. And so let's see how these three perversions of love, one at a time, we'll look at them and talk about how these destroy true Christian fellowship, starting with immorality, number one, immorality. Now, actually, this is pretty straightforward, but sexual immorality must not even be named among you. And the Greek word that's translated immorality, as I said, it's porneia. It's a very broad term that covers all kinds of sexual sin. It is the Greek root from which our word pornography comes. So this is every kind of sexual sin. The closest English synonym would be fornication. But this is a category that's broad, not specific. It applies to virtually any kind of sexual sin. And in fact, the Greek word is, as I said, it's from the same word as root word as pornography. And as a matter of fact, addiction to pornography is something that fits exactly in this category of porneia because it's an expression of sexual immorality. And Scripture is full of admonitions against these kinds of sins. Listen to just one from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, who, by the way, also lived in a culture that had elevated all kinds of porneia into... They they actually regarded fornication as as like a religious sacrament. They tried to ennoble the idea, just like our culture does and called it love and all of that. So he's writing to the Corinthians in that kind of culture, and he says this, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, you'd pretty much have to deny the whole Bible to argue that there's really nothing wrong with fornication. And and even though contemporary culture has labored long and hard to equate 
fornication and love, and, and they're trying to erase the stigma of immorality. The fact is the shame of sexual sin is amazingly persistent. No matter how much secular culture insists that, you know, sex outside of marriage is perfectly normal and okay, most people, you know, except for those with totally seared consciences, most people do their best to keep this kind of sin secret and hidden because it does carry a shame and a reproach that is extremely hard to blot out. And our culture's efforts to normalize fornication have been going on for most of my lifetime, as long as I can remember, at least starting in the 60s, when the slogan, you know, was, make love, not war. Society has been determined to try to normalize all kinds of sexual immorality by labeling it as love. And in fact, this, this whole campaign permeates secular culture. It involves the entertainment industry, the rest of the secular media, and our educational institutions, our literature, and even some government laws now. And it frankly hasn't worked. All it has done is increase the amount of corruption and guilt in our culture. There's more divorce, more broken homes, more unwed mothers, more abortion, more pornography, more people struggling with self-control issues, and less authentic faithful love than ever. And despite the attempts to mainstream promiscuity and remove the stigma of sexual sin, the vast majority of people who indulge in that kind of behavior still do it secretly because they're ashamed of it, rightly so. The human conscience screams against it. It's contrary to the law of God that is written on our hearts. And it is likewise contrary to the revealed truth of Scripture. Sexual immorality has nothing to do with authentic self-sacrificial love, and it has everything to do with the gratification of lust and self-serving passions. And people will frequently try to justify an act of fornication by insisting that their motive really is love. They even manage to convince themselves intellectually sometimes. But the conscience is not so easily fooled, and that's why there's such a stubborn reproach attached to this kind of sin. Look at verse 12. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. There, there is a serious and appropriate shame attached to sins like that, and it's a reproach that is not easy to erase. Listen to Proverbs 6, verses 32 and 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense, and he who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. And so Paul says, sins of the flesh like that, adultery, fornication, sexual immorality, everything else that would be associated with porneia, such things are not proper among saints. Those things are out of place, as he says in verse 5, not fitting. And really, it sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, the Greek expression Paul himself uses is an understatement. The, the King James Version translates it this way, those sins are not convenient. So think about it, just how inconvenient is sexual immorality, verses 5 and 6, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Pretty inconvenient, right? In other words, sexual immorality is a sin that is serious enough to send a person to hell. And Paul says that here. He says it in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says it in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in many other places, Scripture is clear about this. Sexual immorality is a particularly gross and serious sin, and it will send you to hell. Now, I want to be clear. When Paul says, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's talking there about unrepentant people. He's not suggesting that those are unforgivable sins. And Paul himself makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 6, in verse 11, right after giving that list of sins that will exclude people from the kingdom of God, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality and all of that, he immediately then follows that statement, verse 11, with this, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The fact is, people can be delivered from every kind of sexual sin by the redeeming power of Christ. But Paul is also being very clear when he says, these things have no place in a believer's life. If such sins are still part of your lifestyle, it's possible, maybe even likely, that you were never truly washed, sanctified, and justified because no real believer can commit sins like those without utterly grieving the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, verse 30. And so you, you shouldn't be in bondage to those sins. That's chapter 4, verse 30, by the way. So you shouldn't be in bondage to those sins the way you were before. And if you really are a Christian, you can't and won't enjoy gratifying sinful lusts the same way you did before you were a believer. Because if you are truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, what grieves Him should also grieve you. And if you find yourself drawn to sexual immorality and reveling in it and unrepentant in the pursuit of that desire, then you need to examine yourself to see if you're truly in the faith, because chances are you are not, no matter how long or how convincingly you've professed to be a believer. Now, all of that is pretty basic, and for most of us, it's obvious as well. And So frankly, I, I've probably spent too much time on it because the second point is the one where I think some of us are going to chafe a little bit. Here is the second perversion of love. The first one is immorality. Next, he mentions all impurity. Look at verse 3 again. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now, obviously, sexual immorality itself is a kind of impurity, uncleanness. And again, he is not talking here about ceremonial defilement, which would have been the primary concern of Saul of Tarsus before he became a believer, when he was a Pharisee. Because you know, the Pharisees had long lists of rules for avoiding 
ceremonial defilement. And, and they have very elaborate ceremonies that they went through to try to make a great show of avoiding ceremonial uncleanness. You know, they washed before they ate, not with soap and water at the sink to get rid of germs, but with a kind of sacred ceremony to show how far they were willing to go to avoid this ceremonial uncleanness. And frankly, you know, holy water, I've always thought this, holy water in big basins for that kind of washing seems to me like that's just a big repository of germs. <laughs> so all those ceremonies were probably, from a health perspective, counterproductive anyway. Here's the point. Washings like that when you ate had absolutely no warrant in Scripture. And that's, that is the furthest thing from Paul's mind here. When he talks about impurity here, he is calling for real moral purity, not a ceremonial or ritual symbol of artificial purity, but real purity, moral purity. And specifically, he has in mind here what comes out of our mouths and what we take in through our eyes and ears. He began to raise this issue back in chapter 4, verse 29, where he states the principle in a, in a positive command, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. That is true, authentic, godlike, spirit-induced love, using your tongue to edify and minister to one another. And the worldly corruption of love that he has in mind here has the opposite effect. And, and Paul is saying, avoid all of that kind of impurity. Chapter 5, verse 4 is explaining how to avoid the impurity that he has in mind. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Listen to this from a commentary on the book of Ephesians written more than a hundred years ago by Charles Hodge, one of the great Presbyterian theologians, he said that the, the principle Paul sets forth here forbids, and I quote, all filthy gestures and behavior, so watch yourself while you're driving, every indecent habit and attire, and all actions which have a tendency to incite lust. And also, impure words, these discover an impure heart, and they are the means of corrupting men's minds and manners. Filthy speaking is a verbal commission of the things that are spoken of, and it may include all impure songs and books, and the reading or hearing of them. And he lived before movies, but he would include it there, I think. This is what the Jews called filthiness of the mouth, obscene words, and he goes on for another paragraph like that. Now, notice how Paul says it, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. This is not merely a command about what you yourself say. It applies to what you see and hear as well. The New American Standard Bible says it like this, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting. Now, this is where the message starts to rub some people the wrong way, and some might even accuse Paul of giving us a command that is hard to follow without some more explicit details. You know, is there a... And, and maybe 10 years ago when there was a, a lot of uh, talk about you know, what's, what's appropriate for a Christian to say? And, you know, Mark Driscoll was at the peak, and he was known as the cussing pastor, and he, he liked to talk about lurid ideas and things. And, 
And so there was quite a lot of discussion about how much is this is, is appropriate, what is appropriate, what's inappropriate. And I, I took a pretty hard line on this, and people would constantly write me and say, well, do you have a list of forbidden words and topics? This doesn't, this doesn't give a list of words we can't say. Can we have some examples of, of how coarse is too coarse, how crude is too crude? And I've encountered people over the years who raise questions like that, and they conclude that since Paul didn't give us any list of banned words, then you're a legalist if you think any English cuss words should be taboo. And they'll point out that Paul himself used the word scubalon, which is the Greek word for dung, used that in uh, Philippians 3. And Paul also made a sarcastic remark in Galatians 5.12 about the Judaizers where he said, you know, if they thought circumcision would make Gentiles more holy, then maybe they should take their theology to its logical conclusion and have some more radical surgery done on themselves. And Paul did say that. And let me say, first of all, that neither of those examples has anything to do with the casual use of smutty language that Paul has in mind and condemns here. There were less polite synonyms in Greek for scubalon. They had their own cuss words. A standard dictionary of, of Koine Greek says that scubalon, the word Paul used, was a common word with a range of meanings. It was used in one ancient Greek source, for example, to speak of a corpse that had been half-eaten by fishes. And it was, it was also used to speak of dregs, you know, the refuse that's made in the, the winemaking process. And it generally just meant waste. And it has about the same range of meanings as that English word, waste. So in neither of those two instances did Paul actually use filthy language. He didn't. He was not playing with the, with the sexual imagery or obscene subject matter for sport. He wasn't doing that. But in both of those examples, he had profoundly important points to make that could hardly have been made otherwise. And when Paul actually addresses then the, the issue of language, the language we use, the words we use, the topics we speak about, he does it both here in chapter 4, verse 29, and in Colossians 3, verse 8. Every time he brings this up, he forbids us to use filthy language. And let's face it, that means something. He doesn't have to give us a list of forbidden words. The fact that he doesn't do that certainly doesn't nullify the principle he's teaching. You know, those who, who demand a specific list of forbidden words before they intend to obey this principle are thinking like legalists. It's not the people who recognize that smutty words shouldn't be in a Christian's vocabulary. They're not the legalists. The legalist is the guy who wants an exact list of forbidden words. You know. In fact, is 20 years ago, I would not have needed to spend five minutes explaining this verse because this is, after all, a pretty straightforward principle, isn't it? This is not nearly as murky as people nowadays try to make it, but there has been this significant shift in the last decade or so about how Christians think about these things, and it's a change in a bad direction. There are even pastors nowadays who champion the use of profanity and obscenity because they insist this is a valid and necessary tool for contextualization. And for a decade or longer, they've been pushing the limits of language even from the pulpit. And 
as you know, some have already gone well beyond the boundaries of decency and in how they promote their ministries to the world. There, there, there seems to be a trend even in the subject matter of sermons to make everything as racy and off-color as possible. You know, there's a famous pastor, I'm not going to name him now, but most of you know who he is in Texas, who did a series on sex with a king-size bed on the platform as a visual aid. And when he had to, felt like he had to top that, he moved the bed to the roof of the church and announced that he and his wife were going to spend a week up there. And the Lord sent a windstorm and it got a piece of dust in his eye that scratched his cornea, so he had to come down before the week was over. But this has been a recent fad in church marketing. You know, you do a series on sex, you give it a sleazy sounding title, you advertise it by putting suggestive billboards all over town. I have counted no less than a dozen large churches around the country who've done that in the past decade or so. I would describe those marketing campaigns for you, but so much of it is, is just simply too inappropriate to quote or describe from this pulpit. I won't do it. But this tendency among Christians or professing Christians to push the boundaries of decency in the name of connecting with the culture, this has become a massive problem in the past, well, since the new millennium began, I think, and it's still kind of spreading like wildfire. Some of the supposedly Christian blogs and websites and, you know, Twitter feeds on the internet are so salted with so much profanity or indecency or, or in some cases even obscene images so that you, can, you can't any longer depend on the Christian communities online to be safe zones. There's even an article at one supposedly Christian website titled, and I quote, The Art of Cussing and Suggestions on Proper Cussing Etiquette. That's from a Christian website nominally Christian anyway. It's an article that's written by a pastor in Colorado who says cussing is vital to his strategy for building the church because that's the way he proves he's authentic. He says, if you don't cuss, you're a hypocrite. And another woman who describes herself as an ordinary Christian and a writer published an article on this subject which she titled Cussing Christians, and she likewise argued that Christians need to cuss. They should cuss because, and these are her exact words, we have to be authentic in our humanity rather than dressing it up with religious piety. So if you, if you avoid cussing, in her view, you're the same as the, as the Pharisees who wore broad phylacteries. In one online community, someone objected to this is a Christian community. Someone objected to vile language, and people claiming to be Christians swarmed that forum, arguing in favor of salty language. Here's one of the few comments that I can actually quote from that conversation. A woman wrote, quote, "'Who decided that cussing was a sin? Who decided that a person cannot pursue holiness if they cuss? It doesn't say so in Scripture.'" Well, it actually does say so in Scripture, right here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 4, also in Colossians 3, verse 8, it is true that those verses give us, a, and Paul here is giving us a principle rather than a list of words that are forbidden, but the principle really is not that murky, is it? And, and especially here in Ephesians 5, 
Paul is sufficiently clear about what kinds of impurity he has in mind. Actually, he draws the circle fairly large in verse 4. Obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jesting. That rules out not only obscene language, but also frivolous speech, casual, pointless talk about immoral subject matter, lewd and lascivious words, crude jokes and coarse insults, suggestive stories, off-color banter, ridicule, teasing, and wisecracks in any context where those things are inappropriate and unwelcome. It also rules out flippancy about sacred or serious things and all vulgar, scatological, or indecent speech. And that would include anything that makes light of or makes amusement out of subject matter that is, in fact, shameful. Verse 12, it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. Now, let me be clear. Paul is talking here specifically about frivolous conversation, flippant words, what we talk about in these offhand and casual contexts, the kinds of conversations that all of us gravitate to in the normal course of our relationships. There are some times when it is necessary to mention what the disobedient do in secret, and as a matter of fact, Paul does it here. He does it in every one of his major epistles. But he never does it indifferently or, or lightheartedly or without a serious purpose. Paul does at times also use sarcasm or insults or harsh words or, or blunt terminology, but he never uses that kind of language in a perfunctory way. You know, Jesus used language the exact same way, and so did all the prophets. Incidentally, speaking of the prophets, Isaiah apparently struggled to keep a dirty mouth under control until the Lord called him and equipped him to be a prophet, and the Lord personally purified his mouth. When he saw a vision of the Lord in Isaiah 6, his first response was, "'Woe is me, for I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips.'" And one of the seraphim then, the highest angels, picked up a burning coal from the flaming altar and touched it to his lips to purify him. There are obscene words in every culture. One of the questions English-speaking people always ask is, ask is, why is it that all the, and we call them four-letter words, right? They're all Saxon words, four letters generally, one-syllable words. Those are the ones that get classified as cuss words, but there are exact synonyms for all those words that we could use publicly and no one even cringes. So why is that? And the answer is, polite society determines those boundaries. Those are not boundaries that can be determined by each individual, and certainly not by people who inhabit the dark corners of the society. Every language and every culture has the same kinds of standards. In Paul's time, they had bad words, and just like with us, those were words with perfectly good synonyms. In Every language Paul spoke, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin, every language. And, and the reason Paul didn't need to give us a list of those words is that everyone knew what they were, just like you know what they are. And if you really struggle with the concept, here's a rule of thumb. Don't use any words that you wouldn't use in front of a 65-year-old Sunday school teacher named Prudence. <laughs> and if you still don't get it, 
Odds are there's a mom here who can explain it to you. Now, I have to wrap up this point. A couple of things to bear in mind. Bear in mind the context of all of this. Paul is saying that the reason to avoid filthy language, foolish talk, and crude joking is because while that kind of thing might pretend to be transparent, authentic, and a crucial part of camaraderie, that's a bogus premise based on a, a counterfeit notion of love. And assaulting people's ears with foolish and inappropriate talk is actually antithetical to love. Now, two more things, and I'll move on to the final point. First, I don't care who you are, what Paul says here about our speech patterns has got to step on your toes. It certainly leaves mine bruised and bloodied because it is not at all easy to obey the standard Paul gives us here. And in fact, that's exactly what James 3 says, James 3 verses 8 through 10. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not so to be. And then let's wrap up this point by going back to where we started. And remember that what the text actually forbids is all impurity. So the examples Paul actually cites here Though they have to do with what we say and what we hear and what we see, when you remember that it applies to all of that, most of us probably need to make some significant changes in our viewing and listening habits. And I won't belabor that because our toes are sore enough already and we're going to run short on time if I don't get to the next point. But this is a matter we all need to deal with before the Lord, and I hope you will do that. Now, here's a third perversion of love in this passage, and I think we can cover it pretty quickly. First was immorality. Second was all impurity. Now, third is covetousness. And again, this comes from verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. It fascinates me that Paul puts covetousness in this short list. You know, he's got longer lists of sins where he names all the gross sins and everything. Here he gives basically just three categories, and one of them is covetousness. We tend to think of that as a small sin, but Paul says this is not a minor problem. Coveting, of course, is what's forbidden by the Tenth Commandment. So again, how is this a corruption of love? Well, it's a love for, as I said, a love for things, a lust for pleasure or an earnest desire for something or someone that we cannot righteously and law lawfully have. Covetousness. It's a selfish, self-gratifying kind of love, just like immorality and impurity. Covetousness is it's an indication of either a materialistic value system or a heart that's given over to lust. You know, Paul tells us in Romans 7 that he himself struggled with covetousness. And instead of minimizing how seriously evil it is to covet, instead of, you know, treating covetousness like a lesser sin, not a big deal, he always includes it with fornication and other gross evils as one of those sins that is serious enough to send a person to hell. And he does that right here in verse 5. And notice how he reiterates in verse 5 the exact 
same three sins that he named in verse 3. You may be sure of this, he says, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, same three sins, that is, he says, an idolater. He's saying the covetous person is actually guilty of a kind of idolatry. Those persons have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, let's talk about this. He equates covetousness with idolatry because that's exactly what it is. It is the sin of desiring something, something else more than we desire God, which is the same thing as setting an idol in His place. And all of these sins are linked, sexual immorality, all impurity and covetousness. A filthy mind and a filthy mouth make for filthy morals. No one ever commits fornication who has not first committed the sin of covetousness by entertaining a, a sexual desire, an evil desire. And, and likewise, no one commits fornication who hasn't already indulged in the kind of easy familiarity, the casual familiarity with evil that lies at the root of filthy and frivolous talk. Paul's saying we need to mortify those sins at the root, not just tone them down or avoid the worst expressions of them, but we need to weed them out completely from our lives. They have no place, he says, in the life of a Christian. Now, I skipped part of verse 4, but I want to get back to it because this is where he gives us the remedy and the answer for all of these false ideas about love. If you're a believer, and if you are tempted, and, and I guarantee you probably are, because we all are, by, by one or more of these three corrupt counterfeits of love, here is the remedy, the last phrase of verse 4. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. And he's not talking about the holiday there. This is not about Turkey. Let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Well, in everything give thanks, that's 1 Thessalonians 5.18, but look back at Ephesians 4, verse 32, he's saying, be thankful that God in Christ forgave you. That's plenty to be thankful for, isn't it? Thankfulness to God is actually genuine heart thankfulness to God for our redemption is the remedy for all of our idolatry and uncleanness and immorality because it focuses our hearts properly away from sin and self and fixes our minds on God. Just like covetousness, filthy talk, and bad morals act like a leaven to spread evil into every aspect of our lives, gratefulness and gracious speech arrest that leaven and they, they season our hearts and minds with grace. And if you're not a Christian, then this text describes exactly what your life is like, and that's no small matter. Verses 6 and 7, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. What you need, if you're not a believer, what you need, first of all, is not just moral reform, it's redemption. You need the forgiveness of your sins and the power of Christ to change your life because you won't be able to do it by yourself. You can't change your heart and life, but Christ will give you a new heart if you repent of your sin and turn to Him in faith. And I encourage you to do that today. Let's pray. Lord, we confess, like Isaiah, that we are men and women of unclean lips too often. We live in a culture that glorifies immorality and uncleanness and covetousness. 
to give us the grace to be truly grateful, thankful, to speak pure words from pure hearts. And may we learn to walk in love, genuine love, authentic love, as Christ has loved us. We thank you for that love that redeemed us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.